You're listening to an Englishman in the Balkans. Welcome to an Englishman in the Balkans, the podcast that takes you on a captivating journey into the heart of Bosnia and Herzegovina and the wider Western Balkans. Each episode, we delve into the rich history, vibrant culture, and hidden gems of this beautiful country. Through engaging conversations and personal anecdotes, we aim to bridge the gap between the Balkans and the rest of the world. So sit back, relax, and get ready to be inspired, entertained, and connected. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you would like to support us and the production of future episodes, then please consider maybe giving us a tip or becoming a member of our podcast family. The link to do that is in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks again for listening. We really do appreciate it. This is the Balkan Adventures Podcast with David and Tamara. Hi, it's David. Welcome along to the David and Tamara Podcast. Today, it's a bit of a look back episode to an interview I did in 2016 when the Fehadiha Mosque here in Banyaluka was reopened after some 23 years. The Fehadiya Mosque in Banyaluka was originally commissioned by Fehad Pasha Sokolovic and built in 1579. It stood near the centre of Banyaluka until the night of the 6th to 7th of May 1993, some 27 years ago, when it was destroyed by explosion. The Fehadiya's location remained destroyed for all those years and some said that it would never be rebuilt, but rebuilt it was. There were a lot of people involved in the rebuilding, a lot of unsung heroes, and one of those unsung heroes is a Brit like me. His name is Donald Reeves, and he has an NGO called the Soul of Europe. Donald came back to Banyaluka to attend the opening back then in 2016, where I caught up with him in a hotel coffee bar in Banyaluka, and wanting to find out more about how difficult it had been to get the mosque rebuilt, and his thoughts on peace building and reconciliation here in the Western Balkans. But before I started talking to Donald, I really didn't know much about him apart from what I found on Twitter, which said he was a maverick priest, a writer, a broadcaster, a peace builder, generally a nuisance, a visionary with attitude and also a very dangerous man. So why was a very dangerous man having something to do with peace building? Well, that wasn't, I don't describe myself like that. That was how Margaret Thatcher described me, because, um, when she came to power, the Labour Party had more or less finished. There was just uh, a few people who were standing up to her. And I disapproved of the, um, uh, the miners' strike and how that was handled. And when I was in Piccadilly, we used to, St. James's Piccadilly, where I was a rector, we used to support the miners' wives. Um, they come in and put their feet up when they were trying to raise money for their, for their cause. And so I was very, I really found the whole way that was handled was awful. I was against the Falklands War. I thought this was, again, another example of jingoism at its worst. And I think I was a bit of a find for the media, you know, uh, this youngish vicar sort of standing up against uh, uh, the government. And <clears throat> so when, so there were two very things, but the other thing that we did over my time in Piccadilly, we had a, a project uh, called Dunamis, which was a, um, a, a de debates on security, international security, personal security, regional security. This is in the Cold War with China, Russia, and um, 
when we had Americans, we had uh, regular lecture series, seminars, public events, and this was funded by a foundation for 15 years. So it became quite a critical mass of stuff, you know. And I think that really uh, Margaret Thatcher disliked, uh, uh, which might call um, uh, grey uh, foreign policy. She liked things in black and white. And I think all these things led her to describe me to Enoch Powell, an English uh, MP no longer alive, uh, on his way to a, a broadcast at uh, St. James's Piccadilly, and she said he's a very dangerous man. So that's why I was called it. Of course, I'm, I'm now, um, uh, I mean, I'm now what they call a peace builder, which sounds very soppy and um, sloppy and soppy, sentimental, just getting, getting around the table talking to people. But actually, that requires nerves of steel and being able to put up with a whole range of different things. And I've been on a learning curve. This is a second learning curve since I came to the Balkans uh, 15 years ago. My colleague, Peter Peltz, and I set up the Soul of Europe. It's a small NGO. Um, you're looking at, at two-thirds of it now. Uh, but we were always very small. But um, in 19, when we set this thing up in 2000, I decided to come to the Balkans because that was the place no one was going to because that was the place where Milosevic was. So to cut a very long story short we went to Belgrade and then we came uh, to Banja Luka via B-Hatch where we tried to do some stuff which fizzled out and um, <clears throat> because I'm a, a religious leader as it were we naturally called on all the religious leaders wherever we go. That was my card and no one knew who I was, I could be anybody. And um, so we called on the Catholic bishop here, who's a good friend and a good, a good man. I tell you, when a, bishop's, uh, a, when a Catholic bishop is good, he's very, very good. And when he's bad, well, that's that. And um, <clears throat> uh, we called on the Orthodox bishop, who um, uh, we saw yesterday, uh, who's an interesting uh, fellow, and um, got to know him well. And then we called on the Mufti, Mufti Chamdic, at the in his house by the mosque. And uh, he said, I could see when we came in the room, another foreigner, you know, because lots of ambassadors and UN people and posh people would go and, and uh, move, uh, Chamlet would talk about the mosque and, uh, you know, he's the only mufti in the world without a mosque and all this stuff. And all these very famous people would shake their heads and go away and they never see him again. So we said, okay, mufti, we will help you rebuild the Fakhadir. And since we, you know, I make a promise like that, I just determined we should do that, and so we did. But that's when all the fun began. Maybe, I'm not sure about that, we, our involvement was only for the six years, from about 2000 and 2006. That was a real, the whole thing, our, all our life was, was, was given to getting this mosque up again. And, um, but we wanted to put it in the context of Banja Luka. And it, we saw that, I mean, I'm not interested in just building a mosque but I'm very interested in trying to rebuild communities. In this case, uh, rebuilding the Fakhadir was a way of saying that, hi, hello guys, there are Muslims who have been here, they've left, maybe they'll come back again, and this is a, now a town in which there are three faiths uh, uh, which we can celebrate. And that was the idea behind building, rebuilding the Fakhadir. So we didn't, did try and raise some money, uh, we, we failed. We, people thought that we were coming with a large check, I went to see the Prince of Wales, and there's a message I shall read out tomorrow. I've got a message here on my phone from, from Prince Charles, and people said, oh, Prince Charles is going to pay for it. And then when nothing happened, people said, oh, he's gone off on holiday to Barbados with all the takings. 
I felt like saying I could choose a better place than Barbados, but uh, I mean, there's a lot of rumours about that, and people didn't <coughs> want to have a Ottoman mosque; they wanted to have a, um, a Wahhabi mosque, and so didn't really worry about the design. So there was a big, uh, big debate in which we stumbled about that, and then, of course, in uh, um, in, in, in the NGO world and Banja Luka, they were very sceptical about what we were doing. They said, you should be building, you know, all the jargon, building people's capacity. That was the great stuff we talked about all the time. You know, lots of workshops on conflict resolution and all this stuff, which these uh, do-gooding NGOs, who I don't have a lot of time for, but they were very critical of us. Uh, they said, you should not be building religious buildings. Uh, you've got to build up people. And then they said that the European Union and Brussels were not interested at all because uh, we're not interested in religion, which is a private matter. This is what they said. And um, uh, uh, then conservation bodies like Europa Nostra, they were not having to do that either because they were rebuilding something from, from the foundations up and they only do in conservation. So everywhere you went, the doors were closed, which made me more determined that somehow or another, as long as we could, we will uh, make sure that this, uh, that this mosque eventually uh, rises from the ground. So I think those six years really laid the foundation for the people. And I remember our last meeting of the committee, well, sort of committee, which we, I, I was the vice president of the, of the appeal committee, and that's another story, but I, the atmosphere was very hopeful quite different to what it was when we came here. People really were again now determined to get this going. I mean, there were lots and lots of discussions and debates with like, the Swedish Development Agency and various other people who had a lot of arguments about what sort of mosque it should be and so on. And uh, we, Peter and I, went to Istanbul twice. Um, <clears throat> first time it was really good. Lots of people there wanted to set up a foundation and all sorts of things and rebuild the mosque. When we went back a few months later, they hadn't done a thing. And I remember thinking, this is just, you know, what am I doing here, you know? And um, because we, we, we went all over Europe uh, to interfaith organizations. And basically the, the, the message was, let them build their own mosque. And anyhow, we don't want to have uh, programs of reconciliation coming out from Bosnia. So even these really enlightened um, interfaith organizations, whether in Sweden or Denmark and France and Germany, the Vatican, I mean, all, I've been to all these places. So people say to me, how were you funded? Well, the answer was Libya, uh, the, a World Islamic Call Society, which was a NGO set up by Gaddafi. Uh, they, they funded us substantially for the first year or so because it was the time that they were um, trying to make friends with the West. And I remember <coughs> seeing our ambassador in Tripoli, uh, whether I should accept anything from, uh, from Gaddafi's organization. And he said, yes, take the money and run, he said. So that's what we did, and uh, thank God for the Libyans, that's all I can say. There now, so it could be a mess, of course. So that, that's basically how we sort of carried off. Hi, I just wanted to talk about Anchor, the app we use to create and distribute our podcast. It's so incredibly easy to use. You can download the app to your phone for free. It's essentially a creation tool that you can use to record and edit your podcast from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. It's so easy. You can be heard on Spotify podcasts and so many more. We got distributed to some 10 platforms within a day of uploading our first episode. You can make money from your podcast with Anchor and with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to create a podcast in one place. Download the free app at anchor.fm to get started.
I think the, the international organizations are on the whole, as I said earlier, the rebuilding of religious buildings is not a, a major uh, priority. They're concerned with building people, etc., etc. Um, so I don't think the attitudes in that sense have changed very much. Um, I mean, we've done some other work here uh, at Omoskar, which is the killing camp there. We, we were commissioned to bring the Serbs with the Bosniaks together to create a memorial that is still ongoing. We went to see the mayor of uh, Priodor yesterday. Um, and we've done other things like that, we exchanged of schools, we set up a civic forum and all sorts of other things, and we worked in Kosovo. So, um, in a way, we've been around a bit, because I don't live here. People say, why don't you live here? I'm like yourself, you live here. And the answer to that is actually the work that we do does not require that type of continual presence. People have got to, they've got to have, can't find a job, they've got to get have relationships, get married, bring up children, they've got a, an order, a life to lead. And when people like me suddenly arrive dealing with these very heavy subjects, there's a sort of limit to what people can do. So the fact that we came and went was fine. Well, it depends who you're talking to. Um, uh, and I think that on the whole, people like me who are intervening in trying to create civil society, to make it more democratic, more humane, that can't really be done by outsiders. That has to be done locally and within. Um, what we can do is to encourage uh, people to work. It's a rather f feeble answer, but I, I think, I, I, I think we, we were rather colonial when we started. There's a type of colonizing of the Bosnia by, the, by people and by the EU particularly. And I've always been very, and I've become very skeptical about that approach and it was wrong. We did make some quite important mistakes at that point. I mean, for example, we would come here and talk about words like justice, forgiveness and peace. Oh, come on, it's not uh, up to us to use it, it's up to the people to use those words when they want to. And I, in the early days here, 2000, those sorts of days, I was often on the media. That was a great mistake. It should have been the local people who were on the media. And we made far too much of the symbolic um, uh, understanding of buildings. For example, the bridge at Mostar. Uh, you know, Paddy Ashton will talk about this is going to be the great bridge between Muslims and Christianity and a great sign to Europe and the world. I mean, actually, Mostar is the most divided city still. You know, two schools under one roof, etc., etc., uh, in the whole of Bosnia, you see. So, and I used, I got very rhetorical about the Fahadir, say this is going to be a great symbol of Christian Muslim cooperation. It's going to be this and it's going to be that and the other. And Mufti Chandic, who we shall see later on today, used to poke me in the ribs and say, okay, but where's my mosque? And I like that, you see. So I think we have to be very careful about the symbolic stuff. All foreigners need to be careful. But um, it's interesting, when I was with uh, the new Mufti uh, last year, he said, will the soul of Europe now organize some programs on reconciliation and so on? So we will try and do something. But I think there's a limit. There's really a limit to what we can do, but I mean, I'm here and continue to stay in the Balkans. People have said to me, why don't you go to Somalia and do some work there? To which I say, yeah, why don't you go? That's my general answer to people when they say that. It's because, uh, because of the people. There are people here whose bags I would carry anywhere. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the nuns at Novotopola uh, who had a terrible time and they were... Uh, the, the priest was murdered, they were all, some of them were abused, they were taken uh, uh, to Croatia and, um, and they, they then came back. 
And I remember talking to the nuns, why have you come back here? She said, and the head nun said, because this is our home and a place where there had been most terrible uh, abuse and uh, wickedness of one sort or another. And there they are now, uh, uh, carrying on. They rebuilt the farm, they rebuilt the priest's house, and people go there. Well, you know, you, you, you carry their bags and that. And yesterday, we were with a good friend called Mersad, who is the, leads the little committee for a memorial at a Moscow, and he saw his family um, destroyed in front of him. And he is a wonderful man. He has great humanity, and he's very strong, and I mean, he's a real... I mean, these are real heroes, and indeed Adnan, who's not here, who, we, who works for us, he's down at the faculty of them. I mean, he, he's a very brave man. I mean, he, the bravery and the courage of these people is, knows no end. So for them, I mean, you may think this is not, for me, they are become our teachers. These are the people who teach us, and this is why we've stayed here. And this is why I will do whatever we can to help uh, Bosnia become a more humane, more human, more democratic, etc., etc. What is worrying people at the moment is are their jobs or the fact they haven't got any work and uh, what sort of future is for them. And I think this is the fundamental thing which is on top of everybody. I mean, last year, something like 80,000 young people left Bosnia-Herzegovina. And, there's a, and it's the same in Kosovo. People, these, these, these differences and so on are second order questions the first order is how the hell am i going to survive here what sort of a future have i got for my kids uh, and what sort of future will they have so therefore the differences between them are, are, are they pale in significance in these very human questions the other thing is and um, that actually a good deal of um, good deal of relationships carry on between uh, younger people in particularly who are not bothered too much about uh, these differences and last year when they had in you know, 2014 when they had these citizens assemblies starting what was marvelous about it was that it was not run on nationalistic grounds it was done on grounds of wanting jobs and getting rid of corruption and trying to create a more democratic society in Bosnia so I don't think it's a main it's a, it's a real issue so um, it's not the question which, certainly it's not the question which engages as a foreigner my attention very much. A lot of speechifying and a lot of uh, people sticking their chests out and being very grand and making lots of abstract statements about peace and, and order and harmony and hope and all the rest of it, which I don't go along with because it doesn't deal with the actual reality. On the other hand, I'm very pleased that we had a really small part in, and a crucial part in this uh, project which is now taking place. I was very moved when we drove down and I suddenly saw the minarets. I mean, that really stopped me in my tracks. I think, well, something we've done in this country has worked. Has worked. Well, that, I mean, I've been a fellow of the universities and we are trying to pass the parcel, which means you know, passing on what we've learned. We've already done that. We actually have a Dutchman here uh, with us who's a trainee diplomat. And so um, I will be doing more and more of that helping people, and I think they should. I think the sort of work that we do, um, which requires endurance, uh, a sense of humor, uh, coping with dangerous situations, and um, uh, an ability to raise money, and goodness knows what else, uh, all the things you can imagine, and occasionally to be um, uh, shameless, and impertinent, and direct. Um, I have a habit, particularly with politicians who I meet, of being direct. I mean, 
I've got nothing to lose, have I? I'm an old man, so I can say exactly what I feel and what I think. I think there is a job to be done by, on the whole, older people. I'm not sure that a 20-year-old could do the work that I do. In fact, I've got grey hair and I'm a, I wear my dog collar. That's a good disguise, really, you see. And people will, sort of, will, will listen to you until they twig who you are and they think, my God, who's he, what's he doing? I've got something to say about, about, about younger generation, about children, and what sort of world, how they're going to grow up into. And that's where, that's where the new thinking has got to go, where oldies like me can help that new thinking happen. Something like that. Difficult, but I haven't really answered the question, but it's uh, ordinary. Anyone, anyone, look here, any of you guys listening to me talking, what you should do is to get in touch with me and then we can have a longer conversation. Donald Reeves talking to me back in 2016 about the rebuilding of the magnificent Ferhadia Mosque here in Banja Luka. And any visitor to Banja Luka really should visit the mosque. The Islamic community are extremely friendly and would gladly show you around and explain the history of the mosque to you. That's it then from this sort of flashback edition of the podcast. We've still got lots of interesting people to talk to as the podcast develops and Tamara and I will also be talking a little bit more about food and culture in this season of the podcast. If you are interested in Bosnia and Herzegovina, its history, culture, food and places to visit, then this podcast is for you. To be notified of every time we publish a podcast, why not subscribe to our newsletter by dropping us a line to an Englishman in the Balkans, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And if you would like to support us, just check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash David and Tamara. Until next time then, please, wherever you are in the world, do stay safe. To find out more about us and where we live, why not check out our blog? See you next time. And that's a wrap for this podcast. We hope you've enjoyed finding out a little more about both Bosnia and Herzegovina and the wider Western Balkans. If you've enjoyed this journey as much as we enjoy bringing it to you, please take a moment to leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast. Your feedback helps us tremendously and makes a huge difference. Thank you once again for joining us and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you would like to support us and the production of future episodes, then please consider maybe giving us a tip or becoming a member of our podcast family. The link to do that is in the show notes for this podcast. Thanks again for listening. We really do appreciate it.